0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance.
0: And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
1: You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only
0: on Bloomberg Radio. I know how you feel about all this Christmas business. I never get what I
2: really want. What is it you want? real
3: estate Oh yes, who doesn't want a nice piece of real estate? Well, let's find out the cost and the future potential earnings. Melissa Regan is the head of research for the Americas for TH Real Estate. You can be followed on Twitter at TH Real Estate 14. Melissa, thank you very much for being with us. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Can you explain cap rates for people that may not be familiar with the real estate industry and why cap rates are so important and whether they are moving up or moving down?
4: Yeah, sure. So cap rates uh, for people who are who know finance, uh, it's really just think of it as a yield. So like a yield on a bond, uh, you could think of a cap rate as a yield on a real estate property. Um, so if a cap rate is five percent, you could think. You know, that's kind of the yield I'll, I'll get annually from that property. Um, and In a technical standpoint, it's uh, really you take net operating income from the property and you divide it by the property's value, and that's how you technically calculate a
3: yield. Okay, so where are we with cap rates? And you want to maybe start with commercial real estate and how it is segmented because there's much more to it than just retail locations, malls, and office buildings.
4: Yeah, sure. That's a great question. So uh, commercial real estate, its it you have offices, you have warehouses, you have apartments or multifamily, and you have retail. And when within each of those sectors, they actually get broken out um, into finer details. So for the retail sector, for example, you, you break sectors out into malls, lifestyle centers, power centers, uh, and, and grocery anchored centers. Um, and, and cap rates in general for probably the last six months or so, if you just think about commercial real estate in the U.S. broadly, have, have really held pretty steady um, and, and have held pretty steady because investors have um, – prices have been, have been growing uh, quite a lot in, you know, since the recovery. Um, and so there's probably not much more movement downwards for, for cap rates. So, so downward movement of cap rates means prices up. Um, or an upward cap rate of movements means prices down um, so so it's really been pretty flat um, in the last six months
0: what kind of the retail real estate properties when you're looking at valuations cap rates which ones have bounced back the most is it those that are tied to um, i don't know big mall properties high-end mall properties what is it
4: yeah that's right so in in so it's very interesting because if you think about most other segments of commercial real estate, um, almost everything has bounced back uh, well above its 2007 peak. If you think about retail, um, you're right. It's really just the high-quality malls, lifestyle centers, power centers, grocery centers that, have, that are, are now well above their 2007 peak, um, even on an inflation-adjusted basis, price-level-wise. Uh, and, and then everything that is really kind of on the lower Quality end, and you can proxy quality by sales per square foot. It's uh, just just one way to kind of easily proxy it. Has has not recovered at all, uh, and and pricing remains below 2007 uh, peak levels, and that's because investors intuitively understand that a lot of those low quality retail properties. Um, May not, may, may not be here, frankly, in, in a decade from now, because they're, they're really struggling. They don't attract consumers, and the retailers in those properties are doing poorly.
3: I wonder if you could speak to the issue of affordable housing and how that affects the residential real estate market and when there's an undersupply or an oversupply.
4: Uh, sure. So affordable housing can mean different things to different people. Um, it can mean uh, by affordable, it can mean more um, that which targets middle-income middle Americans, um, which we would often maybe call kind of Class B. Uh, and, then, and then you have uh, affordable housing that could be kind of below that, so, so really affordable, really people who are more in the, um, call it, really poverty line level. Um, but, but whether you're talking about Class B or even below a Class B property, it's been very much undersupplied. Uh, this cycle, and then you may say that's fairly surprising because I read headlines saying multifamily apartments are oversupplied, um, but that's really been in the luxury space uh, and the and kind of class, upper end Class A, where you've seen a lot of new, a lot of new supply, historically high levels of new supply. In fact, um, in that space, but the affordable market has been
0: very much undersupplied. Right. And we hear that, especially when you look at cities like San Francisco or up in Portland, Oregon, uh, you know, and certainly here in New York. Um, one thing I do want to get to before we leave we've been kicking around this story all day here at Bloomberg News, and we've got uh, Gene Munster. He's a well known technology analyst. He's predicting that Amazon.com. Uh, that their shakeup of the retail landscape may not be over, and specifically saying that they could buy Target. I am curious how Amazon.com continues to factor in when you look at the retail real estate landscape.
4: Uh, sure. So it, it factors in both the retail and the warehouse landscape. I'll talk about the retail uh, first. We just, uh, so got, Amazon- we just got about fifty
0: seconds. Yeah.
4: Okay. Okay. So I'll just I'll just stick to retail for now. So uh, Amazon, we certainly think about it, it is one of, it drives almost more than half of all online retail sales, Um, and so consumers are ordering more and more online, um, and they're shopping less at at retail centers, but that's mostly low-quality retail centers. Uh, Consumers are still shopping at high-quality retail centers where um, you can't replicate, you can't buy something online, you can't replicate that experience, right? So you have to go into a physical store to get the experience and the goods you want, and, and retail centers that can offer that are doing very, very well. Um, and Amazon's not eating their lunch. Amazon is eating everyone else's lunch. You you can't, you can't don't offer anything differentiated. There's no real reason to go. Um, and so, we, we track Amazon very closely to see what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and it plays a big factor.
0: Yep, everything. I feel like every story has an Amazon angle or many stories. Melissa, thank you. Melissa Regan, she is head of Research Americas at TH Real Estate. Rest, as you know, continuing in Iran. Citizens there have been protesting the government's handling of the economy and more. This as the Trump administration threatens new sanctions. Let's bring in retired Major General Mastin Robson. He is geopolitical intelligence advisor at Academy Securities Advisory Board. He joins us on the phone in New York City. Academy's leadership, by the way, comprised mainly of those who served in the military. And it really is a firm focusing on bringing military culture to the financial services sector. And we welcome General Robertson back with us. Um, great to have you here with us. Uh, General Robson, tell us, when you look at this unrest in Iran, what does it say to you about uh, the geopolitical environment and what investors need to know about what's happening there?
5: Well, thanks, Carol and Pam. I appreciate the opportunity to be on board. Academy of Security is <clears throat> is keen on trying to, to help bring context to what's going on in the world, particularly so investors can uh, read the mark a little bit better. Um, I think it's, it's, um, it's certainly early to see how what's going to happen in Iran is going to play out. Um, it, it's not the first time that we've seen this unrest. 2009 brought similar uh, spike in the, uh, the population. And it's sort of long been brewing, um, so this isn't something new. This goes all the way back into the 90s uh, when the, the uni- university level – has always sort of bubbled below the surface and chafed a bit at the restrictions that were placed on them. Uh, Iran's a very uh, interesting and dynamic uh, civilization in that the probably more so than most repressive governments, they have a a pretty enlightened view of what the rest of the world is like, and it's not uncommon that a large number of um, of individuals, including uh, women. Mm-hmm live sort of double lives, what they live at home and what they live in public are different. So this has always sort of been stirring there. Uh, what we saw was back in the, the mid-2000s, uh, particularly with Iraq as the, as the centerpiece, uh, Iran trying to influence uh, a, a, a greater positioning for Iran, as you saw Muqtada al move into Iran out of Iraq. And then you saw the movement to try to uh, which they, they've, they've long sought to bump Coombs as a, sort of the Islamic center of excellence for the religious community and vice uh, Najaf uh, in Iraq. And so all of this is sort of at play here. And, and what you now see is the economics of it uh, being much more pronounced and much more visible from the standpoint of the money being uh, given back, the new income with oil revenues as uh, some of the sanctions were lifted, uh, but that money not trickling down to the population, mm-hmm. so it, it's sort of blown out of water uh, right. what the ayatollah has long represented, which was it was the evil West that was at the heart of of all the problems within Iran um, and with Iraq now uh, semi turning and in in that ISIS is now at least contained uh, and the potential is there to move forward. You know, it really puts a, a whole new light on what. University level, the population, mid level population views for their leader, their national leadership within Iran.
3: General Robson, are there some specific historical events and issues that people should be made aware of when it comes to Iran that would help the United States perhaps enjoy a more normal
5: relationship with the regime? Well, I think that's probably hard to predict. Uh, I, I do think that. If Iraq ends up being successful, if Iraq ends up uh, sort of retaking its place as a a prominent uh, society within the Middle East, particularly given the amount of water it has, the amount of access it has, and the historical, uh, both medical and religious center that has played in the Middle East, I think that coming out if it comes out positive within the middle east with the for the iraqi people then certainly represents uh, a shining light that, that that undermines everything the ayatollah has been telling the iranian people that the evil west uh, will do to you if they become involved
0: well but, and one thing i do want to ask is is it good for the united states uh, via, certainly, um, President Trump, when he says we're looking at, at more sanctions, we're backing the protesters in Iran. Is that a good thing? The Obama administration said too much American support for protesters would only delegitimize their cause. What should be their position? And we just have about 40 seconds. So if you could be quick, that would be great.
5: Yeah, so I don't I don't think there's an answer to that. I think the Ayatollah total is going to crush whatever happens, whether we give them support or not. I think this is about uh his maintained his credibility i think the region will view sympathetically uh the people therefore i think our giving support to them regionally will be would probably be helpful but internal to iran would probably be no difference they're going to get crushed either way i don't see us going in militarily to do something here i think it's going to be status quo at the end of the day with iran continuing to have a repressive regime and the nations around it continue to shine hopefully a spotlight on what can happen you know, when the right economic and rule of law applications are put in place.
3: Thank you very much uh, for joining us, uh, Major General Mastin Robson, Geopolitical Intelligence Advisor to Academy Securities Advisory Board.
0: to in 2018. It's just our second day of the new year, and already some interesting conversations in the business world popping up, and that includes some thoughts from a closely watched and respected technology analyst, now investor. We're talking about Loop Ventures co-founder Gene Munster, who had something to say about Amazon.com and maybe their interest in Target this year. Let's listen up.
6: Amazon views the, the, the future is a combination of mostly online, but some offline. And so I think that the, getting that 1,500 stores uh, would be very valuable.
0: All right, Gene Munster, talking to our surveillance team earlier today. Let's dig into this. Spencer Soper is our technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us from our bureau in Seattle. So, Spencer, Gene Munster saying, "Well, maybe it might make sense for Amazon to buy Target this year." Uh, we've had some crazy things happen in the retail space. A lot of it involving uh, Amazon. Uh, what are you hearing on this front? Uh,
6: nothing beyond a, a prediction, and it's an it's an interesting prediction I think the main thing it does is it highlights this weakness of uh, continued weakness for Amazon uh, of, the, of their lack of physical stores. You know they, they picked up about uh, 450 with their acquisition, with their purchase of Whole Foods, predominantly grocery stores, but they still have a weakness if you think, I need something, I want to go buy it, I want to see it before I buy it, I have something I'd like to return, I want to return it now. These are things that Amazon still has a uh, weakness to its main retail competitor, Walmart. So this would just be a way, one one of many ways for them to address that.
3: Spencer, Amazon's growth is being fueled by a couple of different divisions, the Amazon Web Services business plus the advertising business. How does that connect with their potential desire to acquire a department store?
6: Well, they're... they're, their main growth has been by taking wallet share from other retailers their, their main business remains e-commerce selling things online um, the the cloud is the fastest growing and is a significant size now the advertising is very small maybe a billion uh, a, a, a year now out of you know more than 100 billion in, in annual revenue so the advertising is fast growing as well and everyone's watching it but still fairly small if Amazon wants to keep growing it has to keep taking, uh, you know, shifting people's spending from retailers like Walmart, Target, uh, to to Amazon. And a way to do that is through acquisitions. Um, but there's also things that people like to see before they buy them. They like to go to stores before buying things. Grocery is a very good example of that. Apparel is another. So there are reasons for Amazon to want to get in the brick-and-mortar game to continue growing.
0: Is it apples-to-apples apples if we say is this is similar to what Walmart did in terms of linking up with a very – uh, a much smaller player, Jet.com, but Jet.com established in the online space.
6: Kind of. I mean, so Walmart, it was largely in, uh, purchase of Jet was largely an aqua hire. You know, they got uh, right. Mark Laurie, who, who who had given Amazon trouble previously. You know, he he uh, was the founder of Quidzy, which Amazon purchased to eliminate a competitor years ago. So it's kind of a... Um, uh, Walmart filled its e-commerce void by purchasing Jet. And the question is: Is does Amazon need another acquisition in addition to Whole Foods to fill its uh, to fill its gap on the brick-and-mortar front?
3: Is there any potential for any trust problems if indeed Amazon decides like to acquire a major retailer like Target?
6: Everyone uh, uh, talks about that. It's this topic of. Uh, uh, it's generated a lot of interest, but again, you just have to think market share, and it's not getting them, not getting them anywhere close. Even if, even if Amazon were to buy Target, it would still have you know about half the revenue of Walmart. So if they're not breaking up Walmart, why would they break up Amazon and Target?
3: If they're not going to uh, challenge Amazon on its uh, on the antitrust issue, does that mean that costs will increase from Amazon? We're going to n- note that. Amazon will be paying sales taxes, which is something that many of the third-party uh, retailers that offer their products on Amazon have not had to do.
6: That that loophole is is closing as well. Um, so I don't I don't know uh, if costs would increase if Amazon were to buy Target. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I think Amazon tries to do whatever it can to keep costs down. Um, the, the main thing would be opening up customer choice in terms of just providing that convenient access to buy things, touch things, return things that they really don't have now. Uh, they they have it to a limited degree with with, it, with the Whole Foods purchase for grocery, but they still don't have it for many of their many of the other goods you you buy in a, in a big-box store.
0: Spencer, just got about 45 seconds left here. I guess many of us are wondering, too, you know, Amazon's next move, does it need to be something that kind of adds to its offerings in the retail space, uh, another line, if you will, or another brand or something that it doesn't have? Or does it have to be something that kind of helps it build out its future infrastructure? Just quickly.
5: Well, it could... It, it, it,
0: or
6: both. <laughs> yeah, that's they, they, they are strategic. When they do buy things, they look to fill gaps. And so the Whole Foods acquisition came after a decade of trying to sell groceries online with little to show for it. And so then they finally capitulated and realized we need a brick-and-mortar presence if we're going to be serious about grocery. And so they, they purchased Whole Foods. So any other acquisition, you have to think, what is the gap that it's filling? And, and largely it's a service gap. Their inventory mm. is, is huge. They, they, can sell, they sell more than more than anyone uh, else out there right now. So their inventory is tremendous. The main the main thing that they need is, uh, is, right. is service. All right.
3: We, we, we got yeah, to leave it there. Spencer Soper is our Bloomberg News e-commerce reporter.
5: I'm driving in my car. i turn
3: on the radio. Hey, how
2: about you let me drive?
3: Oh, no, 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 no.
2: Who's going to drive you
3: home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive.
5: You drive,
0: it's time for the drive to the close. We've got Bill Stone, Global Chief Investment Strategist at PNC Asset Management Group. $141 billion in assets under management. Bill back with us, joining us on the phone from Philadelphia. Bill Stone, a new year. If you went back one year from today and people were talking about what to expect for 2017, I think most folks would not have anticipated certainly the run up that we saw in the uh, world of equities. What do you foresee for 2018?
1: Well, I think you're right on 2017. I would say I would count us amongst the most optimistic, and it it kind of beat out our expectations. Uh, I guess I'd say I'm not as optimistic this year. I mean, I think there's still reason for good optimism, obviously, with the economy is really the global economy continuing to chug along very well, even with the data we got today um, and earnings. Certainly, at least here in the U.S., likely to get an additional boost from tax reform. It's hard to get too negative. I think the thing we all struggle with is uh, eventually, you know, it can only get so good, uh, and then the bad takes over, or at least the less good, and and you probably see a sell-off. I think the hard part is, when is that going to be?
3: So, Bill, how do you advise your, your clients, or, or indeed even the sales force? I mean, do you tell people to put some cash away for that moment? I mean, I think the
1: bigger part is, you know, I mean, I know, you know, we say allocate freer, your long-term goals, but I think if you're trying to be more tactical around it, I think it's more around looking at even within equities uh, where perhaps the opportunities are. I think today might be some little microcosm of what we, some bit of what we expect this year because you're seeing yields really across the globe almost up. Uh, you know, we could just the ten-year U.S. Treasury up yields are up quite a bit, and that looks like it's pressuring in some of those yield-sensitive areas of the market, and I think that. That's probably a little bit of the, you know, again, what we're likely to see for uh, a bit of the year if we're right about uh, what we see in the economy and and yields.
3: Okay. But so I'm just going back to the the question is that um, what are you advising your clients to do? I mean, if you've got big gains, don't you have to rebalance the portfolio or are you saying just keep doing what you were doing before?
1: No, I think you're right. On actually, sorry. I uh, thank you for the clarification. We definitely. Say hey, it's smart to rebalance because you know you've almost certainly gotten—I mean, best thing about out of whack in terms of you know versus what your risk tolerance was, given the great gains we had last year, and it really didn't matter almost where in the globe you were invested. In fact, if it was outside of the U.S., you might have even done better. Um, so I think it makes sense to take a little off the table again. Not that we're negative; uh, it's just a matter of rebalancing a bit to uh, uh, to get yourself back in line with uh, maybe the the volatility that you can handle, because I think the other thing we would say is, and it may not be much of a fearless forecast, but is that you should expect more volatility uh, in 2018 versus 2017. Uh, Part of the reason I can pretty easily say that that'll probably be a forecast that's correct uh, is because it was such historically low volatility, it's hard to imagine it being lower.
0: Right. And stocks, actually, if you compare it with some other asset classes, while the volatility was low, it wasn't as low as some others that were out there. Having said all of this, Bill Stone, go back, though, a year. What was it that people missed in terms of the enthusiasm that we ultimately got for stocks?
1: I think it was really that the global economy was going to come back um, so strongly and I think in particular you think about not I think the US you know people were you know maybe worried a, a bit about it but I almost think Europe was the is probably the one of the biggest surprises because you know you just use the PMI final PMI we got this morning highest number recorded on that PMI number right uh, since they've been taking the numbers and who would have thought that we wouldn't be worried so much about Europe slipping back into recession uh, even Japan was a surprise to the upside uh, we haven't had to worry about about China, really, not that it's been gangbusters. Uh, I think that's probably the most overlooked. And the second part is yields didn't go up a bunch. So there isn't a whole lot of competition with stocks yet.
0: So having said that, can any of that really, really change dramatically in 12 months?
1: Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the way I think of it is, I mean, obviously, you could get yields to finally move up enough to, I'll say, be a better competitor to because just right now they are not. Um, secondarily, like it's kind of laid out. You know, if I if people ask me what is your you know what are you worried about, what could go wrong? Um, it's that we maybe reach that pinnacle of as good as it gets uh, in the global economy. Again, I'm not worried about a recession this year. Uh, really, I'd say hardly at all. I mean, I have to leave out a little bit. You know, um, in terms of a percentage, but frankly, it's just not a high probability at all. So it's more like, do we top out, and is that what causes the market to say, well, we've discounted all the good news. Uh, it's not going to get better than this.
3: I'm just curious about the cost of investing and meaning the, uh, the, what people are willing to pay for every dollar of earnings. You've got a P.E. on the S&P right now of over 22. Do you like that number?
1: No, I mean, I think what you really have to get your head around is on an absolute value basis, stocks are expensive. But the problem is the world's not an absolute valuation world. The, the world's really relative uh, in terms of what else you can invest in. Uh, and when you look at uh, other other things you can invest in, that P.E. is not expensive. Yeah, but you don't um, have to
3: invest in anything. I mean, you can true. sit on the sidelines, right, and wait for a better pitch. True, I
1: think the hard part is, and, and again, maybe it's starting to get a little better in terms of the uh, the cost of sitting on the sidelines. You know, what do you get, 1% in, in money markets now? Uh, it used to be zero not long ago, so we're getting there. Um, but I think it's still hard, uh, especially with earnings still looking good. Uh, and, and at least we think over the long run, you get paid for the earnings. Uh, so we don't need to get stocks to get more expensive this year still yeah. to have a decent
0: return. Bill Stone, Global Chief Investment Strategist at PNC. Asset Management Group. Happy New Year. Move around. Motion creates emotion. motion. I feel the earth move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake.
3: Shake. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose.
2: Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up.
3: Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Yes, indeed, everybody. Time for your Movers and Shakers, winners and losers on this first trading day of 2018, January 2nd, 2018 to be exact. Carol Masser along with Pim Fox, here on Bloomberg Markets. Let's kick it off with the S&P 500. 340 names in the index higher today, 160 lower. Number one gainer in the S&P 500, Pim Fox, is AMD. That stock up in today's session, up $0.70, closing at $10.98 a share. What's interesting is AMD... 2017 was a year to forget. AMD finishing the year dead last in the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index after quadrupling in 2016. So bummer year uh, for uh, AMD in uh, 2017. But uh, moving up this year, uh, at least in the first trading day. And I should point out that Bank Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, excuse me, put out its 10 top U.S. ideas for the first quarter of 2018, top 10 U.S. ideas for the first quarter of 2018, and they named uh, Bi-Rated AMD as among one of those top 10 ideas for this year.
3: People getting a jump on that, perhaps. All right, let me tell you about some insurance stocks. uh, Shares of Chubb down 2.5%. Shares of Allstate down 2.5%. Travelers also down 2.5%. Why? Well, there's a report from KBW that talks about margin expansion, and they've all were cut to underperform. Meyer Shields writing in a note to investors that margin expansion story is just about played out, and he sees uh, likely decelerating rate increases, renewed growth focus potentially compressing those automobile margins this year. Homeowners' rate increases also appear to trail loss trends, implying that the core margin is going to be compressed. And as a result of this report, it seems as though you're getting a lot of depressed investors selling the shares of Insurance companies, chubbed down two and a half, Allstate also down two and a half, and Travelers falling down All two right. and a half. All right.
0: Pim Fox, what stock was up 286, almost 287% uh, last year? And a lot of people th- maybe start to use it around this time of year.
3: Must have something to do with heating perhaps? Oh, no, but that would
0: have been a good guess. I was thinking about New Year's resolutions and losing weight. Oh, Weight weight Watchers. Weight Watchers up 286.7, so call it 287%, up more than 32 bucks uh, last year, and building on those gains here today, up another 8% to $47.83 a share. New Year, new celebrity endorser for Weight Watchers International. The weight loss company has enlisted DJ uh, Khaled as a social media ambassador, and it's a move that uh, helps on the shares uh, higher today. Music producer has nearly 4 million followers on Twitter, and he tweeted that he was down 20 pounds and ready for more using the hashtag WWFreestyle, which is uh, associated with the company's new advertising campaign. The first few months of the year when many Americans resolve to lose weight is a key period for diet companies.
3: So good news for Weight Watchers. Indeed. Not so good news for VeriSign. Shares of VeriSign today uh, falling about uh, 3%, lowest intraday level since the middle of November. Cowan analyst Greg Moskowitz talks uh, about uh, how the December performance was worse than expected. He's looking at a net loss of about uh, 225,000 domain names. He says the slow December was already predicted for VeriSign due to more China non-renewal but also GoDaddy falling about 2.8% in sympathy. VeriSign, according to the report, enjoys a monopoly of .com and .net, and the co.domain name has some margin levers as well as uh, demand generally slowing over the past year. As a result... Shares of VeriSign down today about 3%.
0: All right. Good to know. VIX, the VIX, which lost about 21% last year, losing another 12% here today, closing below 10 at 9.7. We follow the volatility index report. Uh, as we hear, right, Pim, from a lot of our guests, uh, a lack of volatility certainly in the markets. And
3: they all seem to be looking for volatility to pick up. We'll have to see if that really I thought I heard that, you know, January
0: of 2017. Yes. <laughs> we see. shall
3: see. Mm-hmm. All right. This is Bloomberg.
5: All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave.
2: Wilson, where are you? Wilson!
3: Just what do you think you're doing, Dave?
5: We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr.
3: Wilson! Hey, Mr. Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks Commist. What is your stock of the day?
2: That would be Puma Biotechnology, Pim. And, you know, you're talking about the lack of volatility in the stock market. There is no lack of volatility when it comes to the shares of this Breast cancer drug developer. They've been on quite a roller coaster since uh, they started trading publicly in March 2012. Puma's ticker is PBYI. Company went public at $40 a share and rose almost sevenfold within its first two and a half years of trading. Company benefited as Pfizer backed away from uh, breast cancer treatments. Then came a 93% plunge, which ended in May 2016. Last year, Puma rebounded in a big way. The shares more than tripled. Uh, the rally occurred as U.S. regulators approved the company's medicine, nurlings for breast cancer. They did so even though study data showed the drug caused severe diarrhea, among other side effects. Today brought another setback. Barclays cited data from a government database that showed four patients taking Neurlings had died. Now, analyst Gina Wang wrote in a note that the fatalities were probably caused by the disease's progression, as opposed to the medication itself. Even so, uh, the data was enough to send Puma shares to a four-month low. Stock closed with a loss of 6.3% on the day. I wonder if you're going to get more
3: information about it because you know the uh, JP Morgan Healthcare right. Conference in San Francisco that begins on Monday I believe, and uh, that's going to be an. Imp- I mean, always is an important yeah. venue for these companies to sort of present any follow-on information or any details. But I also heard that one of the things that's happening is the they're limiting the availability of the of media to access uh, what are called closed-door question and answer sessions. So I don't know exactly what's yeah, going to come. it'll be out
2: interesting to see how it all shakes out. I mean, this uh, database I was talking about is a relatively recent addition. And people are rather cautious in how you go about using it. Nonetheless, it got uh, investors' attention today. It As
3: did, indeed. indeed.
0: All right. Dave Wilson, thank you. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com.
1: You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.